fact that DRIPA was passed unanimously needs to be underscored. This isn't an agenda of the New Democratic Party government. It's something that was embraced by all representatives of the people of British Columbia. And I can't overemphasize how important that is. That's Murray Rankin, British Columbia's Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. He's our guest on the Akamema podcast. Tanse, Tawao, and welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And right now, we are focused on Bill C-15, the act before the House of Commons, which will ensure Canadian laws live up to the requirements set out in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action number 43, called on the federal, provincial, territorial, and municipal governments to fully adopt and implement the UN Declaration. In 2019, British Columbia was the first provincial legislature to unanimously pass Bill 41, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, or DRIPA. Our guest today is Murray Rankin. He's the provincial minister responsible for the BC government's obligations to implement and meet its commitments under DRIPA. Before moving to provincial politics in 2020, Murray Rankin was a federal NDP Member of Parliament from Vancouver Island for eight years and has had a long career as a lawyer focused on environmental, indigenous, and public law. Minister Murray Rankin, a very big welcome to our Akamemuk podcast. Great to be with you, National Chief. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, Minister. We're coming up to a year and a half since DRIPA was passed into law in British Columbia. So from where you stand as the Indigenous Relations Minister... What have the benefits been and what challenges are you still having to overcome with it? I think that it's been an amazing transformation. Uh, I feel a little bit sometimes like Rip Van Winkle because I was involved as a treaty negotiator and did a lot of Indigenous law both for in First Nations as well as for government back uh, many years ago. And I come back now to, to public life and I see the Chamber of Commerce, the BC Business Council, a number of organizations that did not support the agenda the government of Mike Harcourt and then Glenn Clark had when I was working for them at that time on Indigenous legal issues. And I look, I look around me now and I think, wow, has it, has it ever changed? I, I think that the fact that, the, as you pointed out in your introduction, National Chief, the fact that DRIPA was passed unanimously Mm -hmm. needs to be underscored. This isn't an agenda of the new Democratic Party government. It's something that was embraced by all representatives of the people of British Columbia. And I can't overemphasize how important that is. There's been a change, as I say, with interest groups, local governments fully on side. There's been a change with the government's representatives in the legislature. But there's also been a change amongst Indigenous leaders as well. And they came to the floor of the House. And Cheryl Casimer, one of our leaders, uh, said famously, listen, the sky didn't fall because everyone had said, oh, the sky's going to fall if we do uh, DRIPA. 
Now, having said that, it, it's transformational in terms of how the government and industry and other stakeholders view indigenous people and their rights. That's the first thing. It's put it on paper. It says, listen, all 46 of those articles of the declaration, we hereby embrace. And we'll talk later about the action plan to get us there. But I think what's really changed is that acceptance amongst British Columbians that it's time, it's long overdue to address the legacy of colonialism. And this is a tool. It's not going to change overnight, National Chief. I I know that and you know that. Mm -hmm. We have issues of deep-rooted racism that have to be addressed, for example, and laws that haven't been aligned with the interests of Indigenous people. But we are committed to do that together, and that's what we're doing. So there have been some benefits where you have to bring government, industry, and First Nations together to involve the rights and title holders sooner than later. Exactly correct. The rights and title holders, as defined by the Indigenous people, we have what we call Indigenous governing bodies. That's who the government is committed under the DRIPA to deal with. Now, is that a hereditary system? Maybe. Is that an elected system? Maybe. Is it a hybrid system? Maybe. That's for Indigenous peoples on their own to determine. Mm-hmm. And, and we're committed to that. In some tables, we have negotiations with, indig- with uh, hereditary leaders. In other tables, yeah. we're not. And that all, it's up to the nations to decide how they wish to present themselves to government and to industry and others as we go forward. Those are some of the challenges going forward for sure, Minister, because we all have to move beyond the Indian Act and reconstitute ourselves. And we've always been nations, we say, now moving beyond the Indian Act. And that's where the the, uh, the hereditary chieftainship system um goes up against the Indian Act system, the two-year elective system. And so we have to ourselves, and you quite rightly say, we have to work that out ourselves. And I, I'm, of course, as an individual, it's a federal statute, this so-called Indian Act. Uh, I would love it to not be there, but it is there. And it's a fact of our lives. And I think part of what the transformation is, is to get us back, in some cases, to the title, proper rights and title holders who might have been uh, who might have been hereditaries uh, in a hereditary system. In other cases, that's not the case. It's, it, the, the nation wishes to present themselves with elected leadership. I know several nations I'm dealing with, we're actively involved in, who have a, a kind of a hybrid system where both are represented. I, I think that's, an, as you say, entirely up to the nations. But the Indian Act, until it, uh, until it is eradicated from the federal statute books, has to be taken into account. There's no question about that. Okay, so now, with Bill 41, um, would you say it's been an effective tool for reconciliation? And if it has, give some examples of how that can be said, yes, it's really helped us with reconciliation. And here's some examples you can point to. Well, first of all, I think there's a greater willingness now on the part of government. Back to my Rip Van Winkle world, where I came back 30 years later and all of a sudden things have changed. We now have, it seems, taken for granted that there can be revenue sharing. And so British Columbia uh, entered into a long-term revenue sharing agreement with over 200 nations in British Columbia for sharing revenue from gaming. And that's a $3 billion commitment over 25 years. Um, I remember when I was negotiating um, a, a treaty many years ago, we had revenue sharing and that was considered to be radical. Now it's fairly, it's commonplace. 
Uh, in addition, on treaty making, uh, there's nations that do not wish to enter into treaties, and I'm totally okay with that as a minister. I believe we'll find agreements where the nations wish, in what way they wish. So we have reconciliation agreements, we call them now, that are not treaties. They may be stepping stones to treaty for some, but if not, if a nation or uh, politically uh, and ideologically uh, uh, do not wish to engage in modern treaty making, British Columbia uh, is perfectly okay with that. And that's another form of reconciliation that we're, we're entering into. The other thing is we have to develop, you know, we've had a pandemic. We have had a challenge, of course, in, in getting things done as quickly as we'd like. I don't know about you, but negotiating over Zoom is not my idea of a good time. And it's not for a lot of other nations, right? And we, we also have the whole issue of, of addressing uh, racism and discrimination that um, is, is a priority. And I think, as I say, with a goodwill to a degree that I hadn't ex- haven't experienced in, in the past. I think, in short, DRIPA is an effective tool to uh, address these issues because uh, of the fact that it's a statutory requirement to engage meaningfully with Indigenous governing bodies and with the leadership organizations in our province. And it's all there for people to see. It's like our permanent report card. Are you consistent with DRIPA or not? And everything will be against that, will, through that lens will be examined. Our government will be held accountable for how well we've done it. And I'm, we're not going to get it 100% right, National Chief. This mm-hmm. is a transformative experience. Some people say it's a generational change that we've undertaken. And people understandably are impatient to get on with it. Let's let's just obliterate colonialism right now. And that involves hundreds of laws where we have to go through and a number of other steps we can talk about. So what are those next steps in discussions with First Nations in British Columbia, you know, in terms of uh, the action plan was talked about. So what are the next steps going forward now that DRIPA is in effect now for a year and a half? What does that look like? I think there's three key steps that we're taking right now. Uh, maybe three and a half, uh, as I'll explain. The first is to align our laws. Uh, Section three of our act requires us to align British Columbia laws with the declaration to ensure that they are consistent with the declaration. And then we append the whole 46 articles to the, to the law. So alignment of laws is the, is the first step. We can talk about that one. The second step is the action plan. And that is underway as we speak. There's a consultation draft coming out in a few weeks. I'm excited about it. It's been worked uh, on together. The law uses the words, as you know, in consultation and cooperation, a new concept with uh, Indigenous uh, peoples. And so we've done that with uh, the main leadership bodies in British Columbia. The third aspect, which is not found in the federal bill, is entering into shared decision-making agreements. They could be joint decision-making agreements or they can be agreements that only occur after the First Nation partner has consented to a particular step. So statutory decision-makers who deal with water or forests or lands or whatever could enter into an agreement that we have to write down and share with everyone that is a formal agreement by which that, that proceeds in a particular area, only with the, can, the consent of a First Nation. That's, a, that's a, a wrinkle that we can also talk about. I said three and a half. <laughs> the half is that I'm uh, required under my mandate letter to create 
to get the government to create something called a secretariat to take some kind of senior level responsibility within our political and uh, legal system in British Columbia that's responsible particularly for the alignment of laws. Think about it. There's thousands of laws, regulations, bills, acts, and also bills that are still before that are coming forward. How do we ensure that they are consistent with the Declaration Act? That's a lot of work to do. And so we're going to leave that to a secretariat. And I'm in the midst of trying to advise the government, where should it be? Should it be in the premier's office? Should it be a cabinet committee? Exactly. How do we engage the, the key indigenous leadership in that secretariat? How do we make it work? And that's what I'm uh, tasked with doing. And that's one of the things I'm focused on right right now. So would it be like a, a separate department? Would it have its own deputy minister and assistant deputy minister and that whole thing? That's still going to be dialogued and worked through? Could be, could be. But, you know, the wrinkle there is one doesn't want to undercut the existing Ministry of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. You know, sometimes when you have two leaders, which yeah. one do you go yeah. to? So we don't want to minimize the role of the minister responsible across government for the reconciliation piece. So how do you make sure that the secretariat, however is taken across every other ministry and crown corporation seriously. How do we know that the First Nations believe that, indeed, this is the right way to proceed in a particular bill or whatever? That's what we're up to right now. It's a, it's a challenge. Like, it's public administration 101, yeah. if you will. Uh, I want Indigenous peoples to know how seriously our government is taking it. They don't want to undercut an existing ministry that we're trying to give more power to as well, namely the ministry that I have the current... Uh, uh, responsibility for. Okay, so there's movement. You've got to align the laws. You've got an action plan that's going to be done in consultation cooperation. You're looking mm-hmm. at shared decision-making agreements between First yep. Nations people and the B.C. government, and as well the creation of a secretariat. That is positive movement, no question. What about challenges now? What are some of the challenges and, and headaches or hurdles or things to overcome with this? Because change is definitely inevitable, but it's how you yes. work with and manage change. What are some of the challenges that you're looking at and facing? That's an excellent question. I mean, one of the challenges I have, and that's one I understand completely, is some of the leadership that would of the indigenous groups, which would say, you know, why isn't this done already? Like, how come you've had a year? We got this bill passed unanimously at the end of 2019. And why, why haven't we shown what they might say, where's the action plan? We had one, but it was not much because we didn't have much time to get the first one done by the, the required timeline. But, you know, so there's impatience. I, a challenge I have is I'm an impatient person myself. And I, I've been, this is my first time as a, min, a minister and trying to understand the careful, methodical way that governments tend to work. Some people complain about the pace and indigenous groups are there's a lot of pent up demand to just get on with it, and I I share that that frustration. So I'd say the challenge of that. Second part is this thing called COVID. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I can't I, I don't see any reasonable person denying that that's had an impact on how we get things done, both inside government and you know with indig- with our indigenous partners. I mean, it's very hard to, to do these things during the pandemic. Some say, oh, you know, that's just an excuse. Well, I've negotiated over Zoom, and I suspect you've had a lot of important meetings over Zoom, and it's just not the same. So that's a, a super important challenge, which I'm hoping will be alleviated as we all get, get our vaccines done by hopefully uh, the end of the summer. 
that's mm-hmm. part of the challenge. But I just want to say uh, I'm very in, in, excited about the level of support for this enterprise that I'm finding amongst my other ministries. Remember, this is every department of government and every crown corporation that's committed to this. And so, you know, you might, I'm dealing with some ministries that have rarely had anything much to do with indigenous nations. Of course, there's others like in forestry and resources and child welfare. And, you know, there's some that have a significant ongoing connection with indigenous groups, but others not so much. So I'm trying to make sure they realize they have the statutory duty under the DRIPA to also engage at the highest level. Uh, as they bring in new policies and bring in new laws. And I have, uh, I'm not having any resistance, it's just new. And that's taking some time as well. So the challenge with this thing is, another way to say it is, it's the whole of government approach. Exactly. And it doesn't rest with one particular department. So expanding the scope of this as well, it's dealing with the crown, I guess, you know, because everybody talks and you're a lawyer, you know, the honor of the crown and our relationship is with the crown. And so the whole of government approach. So that is a challenge going forward. No question. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, it's a whole of government and, and, and dealing with some parts of government that just simply haven't mm-hmm. had much experience. Uh, with what we're requiring of them under the law now. All right. Well, let's look and talk about this federal law now. Bill C-15 is this new federal bill, and it's working its way through the House of Commons, first reading, second reading. It's still working its way through Parliament. How do you see the provincial and federal laws working together to improve respect for First Nations rights, title, and jurisdiction? Well, I I think that's an excellent question. Again, and I think it's one that we're committed to, um, to, to, to make sure that they do align well. Uh, we have this 91, sections 91 and 92 of our Constitution where the Fathers of Confederation divided the pie of how we legislate into two categories. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty arbitrary, like fisheries is federal. Why is that? Well, it is. You know, and other things are interprovincial and then it's, it's federal. And not. So Indigenous group probably doesn't really care as long as their rights and interests are are advanced and protected by the appropriate level of government. So it seems incumbent on us to get it right, us being the provincial government and the federal government. So I've had an opportunity now to speak with ministers Lametti, uh, uh, Bennett, mm-hmm. and Miller. Uh, and I've, I've, in each case, uh, held, held up my hand to say, I'm very proud of what British Columbia has done. We're the first jurisdiction to enter into DRIPA, unanimously, as I say. And how can we assist you? I've been suggesting that we bring some of our business leaders to Ottawa to make sure that members of parliament realize just how how, how deep our commitment in, in, our, in our community, both business, private sector, and public sector to this is. So c- could we come and testify to committees? Would you like us to come and speak to business leaders or opposition politicians or whatever? And I've put my hand out and saying, I'm definitely willing to do that. And I, I've suggested that we do so perhaps with the First Nation Leadership Council of British Columbia and maybe the Chamber of Commerce. Like, let's all go together and let's explain to them just how well it can work and how much goodwill there is in our community. And like, I know some provinces have expressed anxiety. I think that's the right word over what we've done. Well, they shouldn't, and we can help with that. And we can also make sure that federal uh, politicians are aware. I want to pay tribute, if I may, National Chief, to my friend Mm -hmm. Romeo Saganash, who, of course, was the one who went to those meetings in Geneva for year after year after year and and, and representing 
Canadian Indigenous peoples and others, of course, were involved. But Romeo's leadership uh, is remarkable. And when his Bill C-262, uh, I sat next to him in the House, very proud of his work. And um, I think we're all in tears when the government decided to accept his bill and to implement not just the aspiration of his bill, but to fully implement the bill. That was a big moment. And then, of course, we all know what happened. It got caught up in the Senate. And I, I, I really believe the government is pushing hard to get it through this time. And I'm so hopeful that it'll happen. But all I'm saying is I'll do whatever I can to assist the federal government. So that we don't have anything that falls between the stools, if I can call it that. It does. It shouldn't matter. We should have federal laws aligned with provincial laws, and those laws, of course, aligned with the Declaration. That's what our agenda should be as a nation. No, that's a strong statement. I like the idea of the Chambers of Commerce and the BC Leadership Council coming together to help make presentations at Ottawa, because we've always said nobody's going anywhere. You know, First Nations, people aren't going anywhere. Nobody else is going anywhere in Canada. It's how do you work together to build a better country for us all with respect for title rights and jurisdiction, the rights and title holders having to be involved. And I think that sends a strong statement. I agree. And as I say, I, I've been really pleasantly surprised at just how much commitment there is out there in private meetings and public meetings. You know, they say the same thing. We're trying to do it right. And I, and I, I hope that Indigenous nations see a difference on the ground. Yeah, no question. I want to as well echo our uh, support and holding up of uh, leadership uh, of Romeo Saganash for his uh, strong leadership on this uh, this file or this issue, you know, through Bill C-262. And uh, we've had him on our podcast here as well a, a few days back and uh, just acknowledged and thanked him as well. And uh, hopefully, again, as I said before, just by having Bill C-15 introduce her first reading, uh, I'm not jumping up and down as National Chief, not until we hear those two words, Royal okay. Assent. And, royal assent. Yes, royal assent. So, so we have to keep right working. On. We have to keep working together to make sure that we hear those words. Royal assent. It's achieved. Royal assent. It's, it's a true legacy for Romeo. It, it, it is a life's like what what an enormous achievement. Yes. Now, with um, Bill C fifteen and then Dripa being lined up together, you know, in Canada, it's still it's so alarming that in twenty twenty one we still have so much uh, racism and discrimination both in the healthcare system and even in the justice RCMP policing system. And, and in the healthcare system, we think of Joyce Echequan in Quebec. We think of uh, what happened with the nurses and some of the doctors and some of the hospitals in British Columbia doing the guessing game on the alcohol content of First Nations people when they came through the door for help. And even in the policing system with the shooting of Chantel Moore from the RCMP and Rodney Levi and the excessive use of force against Chief Alan Adam, like the list will go on and on and on. The disproportionate number of our people, First Nations people in the jails in Canada, 5% of the population... 30% of the jails for First Nations men, 40% for women. It's even higher. So how can we use the provincial bill, DRIPA, NC-15, to start working towards ending discrimination in those various sectors? Well, you put your finger on it. You have to call it what it is. You have to first by acknowledge that we do have... Uh, we do have anti-Indigenous racism in our country. We call, our, our Minister of Health acknowledged that when Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond wrote her report on the healthcare system in plain sight, which is a very disturbing report to read uh, that was uh, just a few months ago was released. And uh, our minister called it for what it was. And uh, we need to start with that proposition. I, I was pleased on the weekend uh, recently to hear that the Canadian Energy Regulator, the sort of follow-up to the National Energy Board, has 
have put a statement out and, and where they have talked about uh, systemic racism. This is a regulatory body that has been responsible for a number of pipelines and other major projects in our country. And for them to say that is another strong indication of change. It takes courage to call sometimes call yourself to account for, for racism. You mentioned policing as well. I'm very proud that in our province, we have, as we speak, a review of an all-party committee of our Police Act. And we have an Aboriginal Justice Council, Indigenous Justice Council, that uh, former Chief Doug White of the Snanamo Nation led. And, and that has produced a lot of change and a lot of decision. And we've also got an anti-racism bill that's currently being considered by a parliamentary se uh, secretary, Rakna Singh. Uh, and she's uh, responsible for bringing in legislation. I can assure you anti-Indigenous racism is very much part of that initiative. So we got a police reform going on. We've got anti-racism legislation. We've put out a, we've, we, a report has been in, uh, introduced, which the government has accepted to deal with uh, systemic racism in our healthcare system. We've so much to do, but at least we've started to talk about it as a as a population. People are not shy acknowledging their contribution, their their responsibility for it. And I, I think we, every step, you, you, you know, a journey of this start of this sort must start with the step of acknowledgement, and that is what we're doing. Now we'll see whether those bills I told you about, those reforms I've told you about, do the trick. I've been shocked uh, uh, to learn those statistics, which you're absolutely right to quote, involving the disproportionate number of Indigenous people, particularly women. Uh, in our in our system, uh, in our penitentiaries and prisons, this is just simply unacceptable. And work is going on right now in British Columbia to find alternatives to that. We've we've got Indigenous courts that have opened now in several locations around the province, and more to come. But there's a lot more work to do. I'm not going to deny that for a moment. That was one of the things that we talked about uh, for years. You know, people talk about uh, a restorative justice system. I think people are starting to use a transformative justice system and starting to look at everything from not only First Nations police, community-based police, uh, but Crown prosecutors. You, you mentioned courts. Uh, what about First Nations judges? You know, what about probation, First Nations probation? Um, corrections needs to be looked at. Uh, use of the coroners. Like, it's transforming an entire system. But what would you say to this thought, Minister, about in Canada you have two laws recognized right now, common law and then civil law in La Belle Province de Quebec. What about your thoughts on recognition of First Nations law, natural law, creator's law, in addition to those two law systems? Funny you should be asking me uh, because I am very proud to have been a, a retired professor from the University of Victoria Law Faculty, where my good friends uh, John Boros and Val Napoleon have led the first in, it, in the world Indigenous common law program in a law school in the world. So students will graduate after four years with a degree in common law, the way that all other lawyers in Canada have, or civil law, but they also have, the, they have under their belt when they graduate a, a, a deep understanding of Indigenous legal traditions. Mm -hmm. And that I think will be so helpful going forward. And we, um, I'm just take my 
I, I raise my hands to John Boros and uh, Val Napoleon, both uh, extraordinary professors who are doing that. And t the government of Canada has stepped up with funding. The federal, the provincial government has the pro the school. Actually, the structure is being built as we speak, but the students are already uh, studying it. Yeah. That to me is the future. That's, and I'm going to echo that and say, I agree with that. Um, like we say, there's no justice for first nations people, just courts of law. Unfortunately, they're not, our laws yet recognized there. And so that's where we need to go if we're going to really transform a justice system that works for everyone. And I think Canada is such a beautiful, rich country, and it's so uh, respectful of diversity. I think there's room for growth in that area. That's what I believe. Yes. Thank you. I, I hope you're right. I, I really do. Now, with C-15 working its way through the, the House of Commons, then hopefully into the Senate, and it doesn't become a ping-pong ball back and forth, and we eventually hear those words, royal assent. And with the good work that British Columbia has done, uh, being uh, leading the way for all of us in Canada here, as in terms of provincial legislatures, already adopting you know, provincial law to, to give legal effect and enforcement to UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, good movement. Some challenges, no question. Let me tell ask this question about hope in terms of uh, what provides you hope as uh, as Minister Murray Rankin with all these things going on and 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 I, I should even couch it and preface that you know the gap that exists between First Nations people and the rest of Canadian society the socioeconomic gap you know the poor housing the overcrowded uh, houses the black mold the lack of access to potable water high youth suicide rates there's there's still a ways to go and there's movement but for you personally um, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is the young people that I meet, the young indigenous people, the leaders of the future. They give me hope. Uh, I, I, I know what you say about the statistics are, are appalling and need to be addressed, but we see better educational outcomes. Not everywhere, not even within our province are, is every school board showing increased uh, outcomes, better outcomes, uh, graduation rates, etc., for Indigenous students. But for many, that is the case. And there's an enormous commitment to that in our government. Um, what gives me hope is looking at young people and, and seeing just, just how bright they are and how committed many of them are to reform. And I just think this is the generation that's going to break through. And I, every time I meet a young Indigenous leader, I, I have hope. It's as simple as that. That's awesome. All right, Minister Murray Rankin. Is there anything else you'd like to get into? Well, I'd like to thank you, National Chief, for your leadership over over the years. Uh, you've made a, yourself a great a great contribution to our country in bringing um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people together. I knew that and knew you when I was in Ottawa as well. And uh, I just want to get that off my chest. I wanted to make sure I thanked you for, for all of that you've done. Well, thank you for that, Minister, and thank you for your leadership and your good work on uh, DRIPA and all you do to build a better province in British Columbia, but indeed a better country for us all. Thank you so much for coming on the Akamema Podcast. Thanks for having me. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamema Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating. And tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>